We have a very difficult passage of Scripture in front of us this morning. It's not because it's hard to understand. It's because it's really hard to hear. It's because it's hard to accept. Let me see if I can set the stage this way. One place to look for destructive influences is outside of the church. You could probably name certain philosophies, certain movements, certain people, certain practices that you feel like have a destructive influence on Christianity and on younger Christians. You may take the perspective that um, if only we can keep young, impressionable people away from those harmful things, those destructive influences outside the church, then we can safeguard their faith. You may see destructive influences very clearly outside the church, and um, they do exist. And they are powerful. The reason that this passage is going to be difficult for us is that Jesus goes after destructive influences, faith-killing influences that are inside the people of God. He points out the ways that mature religious people who think that they're representing God well are actually leading scores of people in the wrong direction because of their misguided priorities and their wrong affections. And what we see here today causes us to ask the question, what if we inside the church are having a more destructive influence on the faith of impressionable people than those influences that are on the outside. What if our priorities and our attitudes are the main problem? What if what young people and young believers see from us, what if what they see from us does more to drive them away than influences on the outside do to pull them away? That's a tough question, isn't it? That's where we're headed today. The passage is Luke 11, beginning in verse 37. It's Luke 11, 37 to 44. If you've got a Bible, I invite you to find that passage, Luke 11, beginning in verse 37. Jesus is talking with the leaders of the Jewish faith, and he's making an appeal for right priorities. And our main concern today is to find out, okay, what exactly is he taking them to task for? And then to ask the important follow-up question, in what ways do we share those same tendencies? And then finally, how do we get it right? What's the correction that we need to make, not only for our sake, but for the generations that, that follow, for the generations that are watching Let's read the text first, um, Luke eleven thirty-seven to 44. Um, I want to invite you to stand, if you're able, in honor of God and, and his word. 
While Jesus was speaking, a Pharisee asked him to dine with him, so he went in and reclined at table. The Pharisee was astonished to see that he did not first wash before dinner. And the Lord said to him, Now you Pharisees cleanse the outside of the cup and of the dish, but inside you are full of greed and wickedness. You fools. Did not he who made the outside make the inside also? But give as alms those things that are within, and behold, everything is clean for you. But woe to you, Pharisees, for you tithe mint and rue and every herb and neglect justice and the love of God. These you ought to have done without neglecting the others. Woe to you, Pharisees, for you love the best seat in the synagogues and greetings in the marketplaces. Woe to you, for you are like unmarked graves, and people walk over them without knowing it. Father, in Jesus' name, we ask for your help. We ask for humble hearts. We ask for good soil type of hearts. A heart that looks like this good, rich, black soil turned over and ready to receive the word. For Jesus' sake, amen. All right, please be seated. Well, what does Jesus take the religious leaders to task for? Simply put, their priorities are all messed up. Understand, he takes them to task for having this really, really, really great concern about the wrong things and having very little concern about the right things. That's a priorities problem. Let's notice the wrong things first. These are the things that the religious leaders care a lot about, but to their shame. Three things are mentioned here as wrong priorities. The first one is that they had a great concern for outward purity. That's verses 37 to 41. So the, the, large, the larger chunk, the initial chunk, we see their concern, their great concern for outward purity. So the Pharisee, that's the religious leader, the Pharisee who's hosting this meal and he invites Jesus to come. He is um, observing a scene and we read here that he is astonished to see that Jesus did not first wash before dinner. And I wonder how many moms are nodding their head or at least on the inside saying, yes, of course, we always wash before dinner. What's so wrong with that? Well, the kind of washing that's in view here is not merely just a, a washing up of the hands. It's this whole elaborate ritual of outward washing. Understand that these were not things that were prescribed by the Old Testament law. They had become part of the religious scene. They had become part of the accepted religious ritual. They were the de facto demonstration that one did things the right and proper way. It's how to show that you were a proper religious person with proper concern for God. If you held to this ritual of washing, that showed that you were one of the proper ones. You were one of the good ones. And to not participate was to rebel against the established system. 
It was to create an offense, an astonishing offense. I think that something of the same level of astonishment and offense would be achieved. So if we try to think, what would cause us that same level of astonishment? What could someone do that would astonish us in the same way that the Pharisee was astonished that Jesus didn't wash? This was the best I could come up with. What if I came up here to preach this morning in my swimming trunks and in a tank top? And what if I serve communion in flip-flops? Is there anything wrong with swimming trunks and a tank top? No, my swimming trunks are actually kind of nice. They're really bright orange. I like them. They've become a little bit faded, and so it's a, it's a kind of a dull orange now. There's nothing wrong with those things. Of course there's nothing wrong with them. They're no violation of God's law. They are a violation of the conventions of people. They violate properness. That would violate our understanding of what a person who has a proper regard for God will do. You would look at me and say, he has no proper regard for God. We use dress as a marker of how right with God a person is. For us, dress is an outward marker of piety and of purity. Now think about it. Is it good for us to think that way? Think about this. A person can go into a church in America and they can be wearing a beautiful dress, they can be wearing a suit and tie, but on the inside they can be full of greed and wickedness. And we would still look at that person and say, here's someone who has a proper regard for God. Here's someone walking through the doors of a church that knows how to dress for church. What a fine person they are. And then on the other side, we could see a person walk in, any church in America, not just here, most churches, dressed like I just described, tank tops, swimming trunks, flip-flops. They could be the most compassionate person in town, the most devoted to Christ in the whole area, and still they would be looked at. And you know, you know what you would be thinking. They could be thought badly of. They don't show proper regard for the established norms. And you might think, well, Hey, wouldn't, wouldn't a person who really cares about the people of God, wouldn't, they wouldn't be so provocative. Like, why would you be so provocative as to wear something like that? I mean, what's the point of doing that? Sure, we can do that if we want to, but why provoke the issue? Well, if you feel that, that's what Jesus does here. He provokes the issue. He knew what kind of an offense was going to be caused by him not going through the ritual washings. He creates a huge offense, and he knew it would create an offense, and he did it anyway. Because the conversation about what is truly important and what's not truly important was so crucial to have. He charges the Pharisees with being very concerned about outward or merely external purity, like the cleanliness of the cups and the dishes while they let themselves go to rubbish on the inside. Full of greed, full of wickedness. We see that in verse 39. 
And he calls them fools for thinking that way. You fools. And we look at this situation, we say, we recognize their foolishness. We see it. We recognize the foolishness in them. But then, of course, we do the same things, just in different ways. We have our own lists. We have our own markers of external purity that we care a lot about. I'll name just a few more in the name of being a little bit provocative. Some of these are going to hit close to home. What sign do we look for that someone is right with God, that they're doing things the right way? We already mentioned what a person wears to church. Here's a few others. How about how often a person goes to church? How a person spends their free time. How they spend their free time on Sundays. The way someone prays. The Bible translation that they use. Where their kids go to school. Public, private. Do you homeschool? Do you not homeschool? talking about external markers of purity, what they watch for entertainment, where they go on vacation, who they vote for, what books they read, what music they listen to. We could, we could go on. These are all man-made outward markers of purity, which are no proper accurate measurement of one's actual purity. Let me ask you a question. Could there be a missional reason why someone might dress a certain way or read a certain book or send their kids to a certain school? Should mission ever play a part in our personal decision-making? Should mission ever have a say in why we do what we do and why we dress the way we do? Did mission drive the decisions that the Apostle Paul made? Did he become all things to all people in order to win some for Christ? When we use outward things as a measuring stick, we're guilty of what we could call religious reductionism. Reducing true religion to just observable, arbitrary, outward markers. We miss the whole point of religion, which Jesus is going to indicate shortly. For now, we're just going to notice and hopefully agree together, stop judging people by your outward markers of purity. It's foolish, according to Jesus, verse 40. Okay? The second thing, we're talking about the things that Jesus is taking them to task for. Great concern for the wrong things. The second thing that they get wrong, that we get wrong also, is a great concern for exactitude in ritual. This is verse 42. Great concern for outward purity, great concern for exactitude in ritual. According to the text, we see verse 42 that they tithe their mint and their rue and every herb. They had great concern for making sure the proper amount was tithed. Okay, this is a biblical concept. This is a good thing. Leviticus 27 
Leviticus 27 reads this way, every tithe of the land is the Lord's. They're just attempting to be obedient in the smallest things, right? That's good. Make sure that the Lord is getting his 10% of even the smallest herbs, even the smallest plants. We don't want to neglect those things. They worked with exactitude at making sure that the Lord got his 10% of every little thing. And we would amen that, wouldn't we? Amen. Obedience in the smallest things. Yes. Amen. Great. Jesus even affirms here that the tithing itself isn't wrong. It's right. Verse 42 again. These you ought to have done without neglecting the others. Okay? He's not saying the tithing is bad. The tithing is good. What they have is a problem of perspective. There are these other massive issues that they're neglecting like justice and love of God. That likely means love for God. Man's love for God. We'll talk more about what those things mean in just a moment, but the problem here is that they have a a great concern for exactitude in the tiny things, and they have no concern at all for the major things. It's a problem of perspective. Let's see if we can bring it home to our lives here. Every church has to decide what is going to constitute a crisis for us. What is going to get us worked up? What is worth giving our collective energy to? Does injustice in our community and in the world get us worked up? Does the oppression of the vulnerable get us worked up? Do the needs of widows and orphans constitute a crisis for us? Does getting the gospel message of Jesus to the ends of the earth, does that move the needle for us? Does the violent persecution of the church in other parts of the world constitute a crisis for us and drive us to prayer? Every church gets to decide what constitutes a crisis for us. Is it going to be things like the ones that I just named? Or will other things constitute a crisis for us? Things like Style of worship. Instruments used in worship. Volume of worship. Light and sound used in worship. Color of the carpet, color of the paint. Starting time of worship. Ending time of worship. Location of worship. New programs begun. Old programs ended. Old traditions set aside, new things tried. Schedules, times, traditions, rituals, colors, places, continuity. Are those kind of things going to constitute a crisis for us? It's not that it's wrong to give proper consideration to those things, just like it wasn't wrong for the Pharisees to tithe even the smallest plants. That's good. It's good to give due consideration to those things. 
The thing that Jesus is pointing out is, how could you care so much about these comparatively small things and care nothing about these massive things? That's a shameful condition. And that's a condition that we have to avoid. Any church can tear itself apart by debating and arguing about the small details. And all the while, the millions die and the millions are oppressed and the millions wait to be taught about the love of Jesus Christ. I know of a church... I'm familiar with a church that about 15 years ago split because half the church thought it would be good to take the money that they had saved and build a new building on the property that they owned. And the other 50%, approximately, about the other half, decided, no, we want to take that same money and renovate the building that we have now and stay here because we like the location and we like the place where we've always been. And they couldn't solve the issue. So relationships were ruined, pastors left, lots of bitterness, lots of anger, lots of pride, and they went their separate ways. And you could, I know that you could cite similar examples from your experience and from your friends and family. So a church split because they couldn't decide what to do with their building, couldn't agree. What if, what if in the middle of one of those contentious meetings that I'm sure they had, what if in the middle of it all, when all these points were being hammered out and things were getting uncomfortable and people weren't agreeing, what if in the midst of one of those contentious meetings, someone had stood up and said, you guys, this is embarrassing. This decision is worthy of some discussion, but in the end, there are massive problems in the world and in our community that we have the answer for. And we're wasting time and energy arguing about something of no eternal significance. Most of the churches in the world don't have their own building at all. And here we are, like doctors who are trained to help people, Here we are like physicians that have the answer and have the ability to help people standing in the back arguing about who gets the corner office while all these people are suffering out in the waiting room waiting for some help. How embarrassing is that? See, these people have become a caricature. What a shameful thing. So we get to decide and every church gets to decide what's going to constitute a crisis for us. In light of the universe and the eternal God and the eternal value of his image bearers, in light of heaven and hell, in light of the brevity of life, what are we going to let be a crisis? By the way, I just want to interject This is one of the benefits of expository preaching. I'm not preaching this passage because I think we have a problem, okay? It's that we're going through the text in order, and this is the time to talk about these things. The contentious meeting is not the time to talk about it because no one's listening then. 
Emotions are too high. This is the time when emotions are not high. We're just here learning in the quiet, in the course of the text. This is the time to recalibrate. This is the time to get our hearts right, to understand what should get the majority of our time and our energy and our angst. There's a third thing they're getting wrong. This is verse 43. They have, Jesus points out, a great concern for public affirmation. Okay, so he's ticking off these things. He's confronting them with these issues. Great concern about all these things. They're concerned about outward purity, concerned about exactitude in ritual, while all these other things need to be taken care of, these major things, you know, neglecting all of them, to be concerned with small details. And the last thing, verse 43, is their great concern for public affirmation, right? They love the best seat in the synagogues and greetings in the marketplaces. So they love recognition, they love position, they love the deference that they receive from people, they love the honor that they receive from people. Notice the double use of the word love in this passage. Notice that it's used twice. Notice that they're neglecting love for God, but notice what they do love. They love the best seat in the synagogue. They love greetings in the marketplaces. So what does that tell us? Their affections are disordered. They love the wrong things. They have a great concern for the question, am I being honored? And they have no concern for the question, is God being honored? We pose the question to ourselves at the very beginning. We pose this question, what if the destructive influences on the faith of the next generation come mostly from the inside? What if the influences that push them away are greater than the influences that pull them away? Well, in light of this current issue that we're talking about, public affirmation, ask yourself this question. What kind of influence has it had on millennials and Gen Z and Gen Alpha that so many churches and church leaders and church boards have been marked by narcissism and pride and desire to protect the image of the church? and of the pastor have been marked by abuse of power, failure to help victims, desire to cover things up, desire to maintain an image of health and holiness and and rightness in the public eye. What kind of influence do you think that's had on the impressionable younger people that are watching? I want to acknowledge here that not everyone will be familiar with the extent of the problem, okay? I keep up with these things because it's my job. This is my field. So I'm aware of how prevalent the issue is. You may not be. That's fine. I just want to let you know it's severe. It's widespread. It spans the spectrum of denominations. It's a massive problem. And so I ask you, could those dynamics within the church ever be a substantial reason for 
leaving the church and walking away, walking away from the faith. I'm not saying yes or no. I'm just posing the question of what kind of influence does it have on impressionable people when leaders are more concerned about their own image than the well-being of the people of God? Which one of those things was true of the Pharisees? And which one of those things is true today? I want you to know that I talk about this particular issue and pose these questions to you with um, a lot of fear and sobriety because I know that I'm being recorded right now. And I know that the same issues and same impulse for pride and protection and establishment and maintenance of my own image, those same impulses are in my heart and they're very, very, very strong. And who's to say that five years from now, this video, this recording is not going to be shown again except this time in mockery of me because I preached against these things hard and then I become guilty of the very same things. Who's to say that that won't happen? I'm not better. We're not better than anybody else. All we have is the grace of God and the scriptures and we have today to once again crucify these desires, crucify this pride inside of ourselves to lay it down at the cross. Set aside our own desire for public affirmation, promotion of self, protection of self, and remember that these things just should not be named among the people of God, all right? I'm mostly just preaching to myself as usual. I'm in this with you. We're all in this together. These are the things that Jesus takes them to task for, and we've taken the time to recognize where they intersect with our lives. Now, he, ju- he does mention the things that they should be pursuing, so let's give attention to those two things, and then we'll be, we'll be done. They should, according to verse 41, be concerned with inward purity. These are the, the right things that they're giving very little attention to, very little concern for the right things, remember? Now he's going to name those right things. One of them is inward purity. Instead of being concerned about the cleanliness of their hands or the dishes, they could, should be concerned about the cleanliness of the heart. Aren't you intrigued by this little statement in verse 41? But give as alms those things that are within. What does that mean? Give as alms those things that are within, and behold, everything is clean for you. So almsgiving, that's giving to the poor, right? It's something you did typically on the way to worship. You would give some money to the poor. That was the proper thing to do. It was an outward thing to do. So you see someone walking into worship, they give their alms to the poor. You could give them a pat on the back for that. Aren't they being proper? Jesus, on the other hand, says, give as alms those things that are within. Well, how do you give inner alms? Well, what do you have within you? What's inside of you? How about your heart? How about your soul? How about your mind? How about your strength? Who do those things belong to? Is God getting those things from you? 
Are you giving your alms within? If God's not getting them, what is getting your heart, your soul, your mind, your strength? See, the answer to that question is much more important than the other rituals you hold to. It's much more important, infinitely more important than what you wear to church or any of those other external markers that we hold to. Jesus points us to the interior life as the proper concern, but not the only concern. Christianity should not be reduced to only what goes on on the inside, a personal piety. There is this second matter that we see in verse 42, what I would call the values of the eternal kingdom. Inner purity, if you're looking to complete your notes, the two things he points them to, inner purity and the values of the eternal kingdom. Verse 42. He points out that instead of being so concerned with minor issues, our priority should be the values of the eternal kingdom. And he mentions two, justice and love of God. Or as I said earlier, probably best thought of as love for God, man's love for God. These are things that leaders should be pointing people toward, leading people toward. These are things that do constitute a crisis when they're not present. Here's a good diagnostic for us to figure out whether something is important enough to constitute a crisis. If we're trying to figure out how important is this issue that I'm thinking about? Is it a big deal? Is it not a big deal? If we want to know what it's okay to get worked up about, what should be a crisis for us, a good way to find out is to ask, does the thing at stake here represent a value of the kingdom of God? This is where our passage today intersects with our major outline of Luke. We're asking the question, what is the kingdom of God like? And we've said many, many times, we are the present manifestation of the kingdom of God. We are the realm in which God is reigning. The Christian is the realm in which God is reigning. We're an imperfect, incomplete manifestation, but we are the present manifestation. Therefore, we are to advocate for the values of God's kingdom. Righteousness, justice, peace, forgiveness, kindness, grace, hospitality, compassion, humility, those things reflect the character of God. That's why we're here. To show the world what God looks like in the context of life. And so I ask you, what kind of influence would it have on millennials, on Gen Z, on Gen Alpha, if they look at a church and see a bunch of people who seem to be really really, really, really concerned about righteousness, justice, peace, forgiveness, kindness, grace, hospitality, compassion, humility. What if we were to major on those things and set smaller, 
non-kingdom value things in another category that we simply refuse to be derailed by. Can a group of people do that? No. No, they can't. But a group of people indwelled by the Holy Spirit and committed to Christ above all can. The last thing that Jesus does is remind us what's at stake. This is verse 44. He reminds us what's at stake in this issue. Woe to you, for you are like unmarked graves, and people walk over them without knowing it. He's letting them know that their misaligned priorities don't only affect them. They have this huge destructive influence on other people. Their bad leadership causes others danger. They imperil others. The image here is really two things. It's both people falling into this big pit without being aware that it's coming up. They just fall in. And also in the process becoming unclean through the contact with a dead body. That's huge trouble. The Pharisees cause all this trouble, all this detriment to others through their wrong priorities. And that's what we have to remember too, that misaligned priorities in the church don't just condemn us. They have a huge destructive influence on others. As they watch our pride, our arguing, our judging people based on externals, people are going to ask, is this what religion is all about? Who, who wants that? <laughs> who wants to be part of that? You know what's going to happen? People are going to go elsewhere to find other groups that are concerned with compassion and kindness and peace. And those groups exist, even ones not centered on Christ. And they will align with those groups because they know what the right values are. It's not that they're rejecting the values of peace and justice and righteousness. It's that the church can be such a rare place to find them. Well, that's nothing new. It was that way here in Luke 11. But it need not always be that way. If we get low and we receive the word of Christ and we do the beautiful work of repentance. So I urge you to hear the word of Christ today and make your own response of worship to him. Amen. Father, Jesus' word has this incredible way of of piercing us and getting right to the point. It's so true. He's exactly right. And we see through reading this passage that the human condition, the sinful condition of our hearts doesn't change over the millennia. Our hearts are the same. And we are just as much in need of the rebuke as these people in Luke 11. Oh, help us, Lord. Lord, have mercy. We're not better than previous generations, and we will fail. I pray that repentance and restoration would be quick, and that the word of Christ would always mean something here in this body and mean something inside of my own heart. Thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.